1: Welcome to this special live edition of the Cynical Podcast, coming to you from the Definitive China Happy Hour at the 18th Street Lounge here in Washington D.C. Let's hear you, folks! Make a little noise. That is more than a little noise. That's that's excellent. I mean, I, I'm, I'm going to have to like recalibrate my microphones after that. I am Kaiser Guo, joined, of course, by Jeremy Fire and Fury Goldcorn. And, you know he is a podcast host the likes of whom the world has never seen. Fire and Fury is what he's going to bring down on any of yous out there who these he's chatting when you should be listening to our podcast. So, how are you, Jeremy?
2: I'm doing very well. Delighted to be here in my adoptive nation's capital.
1: Meijing, as I call it. You guys should pick up the word. It's called Mejing, right? American capital. All right. Jeremy, of course, is editor-in-chief of SubChina, and SubChina, of course, is the best way to stay on top of the latest news from China in just a few minutes a day, with Jeremy's meticulously assembled free daily newsletter, and of course, our app, and at the website subchina.com. it is truly a feast of business, political, and cultural news about a nation that is reshaping the world. We want to say some thank yous.
2: Yeah, at this point, we are going to repeat our thanks to uh, Winslow Robertson uh, for putting this together and hosting us here in D.C. Let's hear it for not only Winslow, but his entire team. Thank you very, very thank much for Winslow. bringing us yeah. here.
1: Thank you, Yeah. Yeah. And of course, to Morgan and his excellent outfit, uh, the uh, U.S. China Strong Foundation, and to Nat Ahrens and the American Mandarin Society. The American Mandarin Society teaches you to speak Mandarin, but probably not of the sort of Mandarin that we're going to teach you tonight. <laughs> you will see what we're talking about in just a little bit. Uh, we also want to thank uh, the, the young China watchers, yeah, the young China watchers are, are some excellent folks. And the D.C. China Society. yeah, let's give up.) <laughs> That, that's, that will sound perfect in, the, in the, the show that goes on the website. The editing <laughs> magic, the magic of my editing. So it is just the two of us today, which is a rare thing, uh, but we, we'd love to take your questions toward the end, and we will leave time for that if possible. Uh, Jeremy, why don't you introduce uh, our topic for the evening? So uh, if any of you read our daily email newsletter or As our should. website, um, you may have
2: seen something we published recently, uh, a full translation Uh, with some explanations of what is reported to be Xinhua News Agency's uh, updated style guide, uh, which tells the state news agencies' reporters and editors what words and phrases they should and maybe more importantly should not use. Um, Today, we're going to talk about this rather remarkable and revealing list.
1: Yes, uh, there are many reasons why this list is so significant and so deserving of a close look. Uh, When I first encountered it, What immediately came to mind was this old saw I often heard uh, from historians, from people talking about uh, the the, the practice of studying history. And they they used to say that when you are studying an ancient society and you find all over uh, these injunctions not to do this or not to do that, you can be pretty sure of one thing, that people in that society at that time did that. If it's don't do such and such you can be pretty sure people were doing such and such. For example, do you see a lot of signs around Washington, D.C. that say, do not spit on the ground? No, you do not. But where do you see a lot of signs that say, do not spit? Right, 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 so you get the idea. Uh, But you you see them all over the place, right?
2: (laughs) More than that, uh, just like lists of uh, censored words do, The style guide uh, that we're going to talk about gives you a great idea of what the insecurities are, where the red lines are. And these include everything from sensitivities about how Hong Kong, Taiwan
1: and Macau are talked about to dirty words. So we're going to take a look at this uh, Xinhua style guide today, updated. Uh, first, Jeremy, I guess I, I, I want to ask you first, how do we know that this document is authentic? What leads us to su- suspect that this is actually not just some clever forgery? or? A well, thing? we don't absolutely, uh, but there are a few signs.
2: Firstly, it was circulated widely on WeChat and Weibo, social media accounts of many people that I know work as journalists in, in state media. Uh, It hasn't been deleted from WeChat and other social media platforms. Um, The level of detail uh, about political issues is uh, much more than you would expect from a spoof. Uh, And with attention to things that if you were just writing a spoof to take the piss out of Xinhua, you probably wouldn't include. And then finally, the guidelines actually comport with what you see in Xinhua news agencies' reports. And I should just explain, I I mean, I think this is a pretty China-savvy crowd, but um, just to make sure everyone is aware, Xinhua is the biggest Chinese state-owned central news agency. It's the source of authorized copy, free copy for Chinese newspapers and websites um, across the country, and sometimes compulsory copy, because when certain events happen, Uh, various propaganda uh, authorities uh, will say use only authorized copy
1: to talk about this news event and that usually means xinhua. So let's offer an overview of the style guide itself. I mean, the list uh, with all its injunctions, all its do's and don'ts, all its verboten words uh, is organized into different categories. There's politics and law, which includes The 38 vulgar phrases that you will all be delighted to learn about tonight. I think this is really the reason why Jeremy wanted to do this, just so he could say naughty words in front of a crowd of of people. Uh, There's a long section on law, which we'll we'll delve into in some detail. Uh, A section on religion and ethnicity. One on Hong Kong, Macau, Taiwan, and the issues of territory and sovereignty. And finally, one on international relations, but i 've tended to think of it instead in terms of, of, of a different couple of categories in terms of first politically correct words, which actually you know show I think an increasing sensitivity about things like minority nationalities or the disabled, or uh, you know generally avoiding being an asshole in, in, in the way that you, you, you speak uh, and then there's correct party speak, uh, which is you know in, that is keeping, you know, the, 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 your use of language, the way that you deploy phrases in line with official uh, party ideology. And then there's good old dirty words. Uh, of course, the compilers didn't conceive of it this way. Uh, but, Jeremy, do you, do you think, I think that, that let's, let's talk about these politically correct words first. There's, there's an awful lot of them, and they, they span a bunch of the, the different categories. Do you think that they kind of represent progress in some way? well i think i think there is an aspect of, of
2: progress that you can see in in terms of the fact that wanting to use a more polite word to describe people who have physical handicaps who are of different es- ethnicity or nationality is certainly a sign that you know a society is starting uh, to care about people who may be more marginalized. And that is progress.
1: Yeah, so maybe we should send this over to Pennsylvania Avenue, right? And have, let them learn about this. So, I mean, for example, for the physically disabled, you're not supposed to use the offensive terms like one-eyed dragon or 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 for the deaf or or and you're not supposed to say retarded like or Instead, you're supposed to use stuff like you know bengren for the, the the vision impaired or the hearing impaired, lungren, or the mentally disabled. You know. Uh. Anyway, this is this is the idea. You're also not supposed to emphasize a certain group of people or an identity in news reporting. So you're not supposed to say, for example, when reporting about disasters, uh, there's a student from Peking University among the victims. The or the others are just ordinary people. Although you know, I noticed that the Hong Kong press was talking about the. Uh, the earthquake and saying, you know, hundreds dead in, in, in earthquake in Jiu in, in, uh, Jaijou, including five people from Hong Kong. Yeah. <gasps> but they weren't following
2: the Xinhua rules. Right. Um, and then, of course, there's the uh, uh, terms, offensive terms for minorities. Uh, so the list includes uh, uh, a prohibition on using words like hui hui for uh, the hui minority or manzi for the same group. For uh, Mongolian people, you shouldn't use Mengzhu. You should say Menguzhu, you you know. So um, there is an attempt to take out some of the language that you do hear quite a lot in China, but take it out from official media reports.
1: Yeah, and you're not supposed to use insulting expressions in colloquial language. for, uh, For example, you know, you're not supposed to say... Uh, as an insult, Mongolian doctors—you know, uh, which which really means quack daifus. You're not supposed—you're not supposed to call quack doctors Mongolian doctors, uh, which is which is progress. I think you'll 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 agree. And Mongolism, of course, you know, people who, who have uh, Down syndrome are not to be referred to as Mongols or Mongoloids, right? So progress, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah the, indeed.
2: The, 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 the um, the there's also, interestingly, uh, a lot about Muslims and Islam. Uh, you know, almost a, an outsized section, I think, on, of the style guide is, to devoted, uh, is devoted to how you talk about Muslim people.
1: And that's, that's really interesting because recently in China... Islam, Islamophobia, the the fear over so-called halalization has been a big uh, talking point online. On a lot of people are, are worried that you know all 21 million Muslims in, uh, in China's ridiculous. You know, 1.4 billion people are somehow going to you know force everyone to stop eating pork. Uh, it's 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 a strange form of Islamophobia that has sort of taken over in China in a lot of chat rooms. You know, some of it uh, hides behind this veneer of atheism. Right? Just it says, well, you know. Uh, the Communist Party is, is an atheist party, and then th- therefore there should be uh, no sort of uh, gentle treatment of, of different minority nationalities. We talked about this at length on, on a show that actually, Jeremy, you had to sit that one out. I mean, it was Ada Shen uh, and I talked to Alice Su and to Ma Tianjie, who is a, a terrific blogger based in Beijing, about uh, rising Islamophobia in China. And I would urge all of you to check out that podcast, which goes into uh, that subject in, in some depth. But uh, there is an awful lot, yeah, that, that deals uh, with Islam here, uh, including, you know, the way that you refer to Islamic countries. Uh, you're not supposed to call them Muslim countries or refer to the Muslim world. You say instead Islamic countries or Islamic the Islamic world, and you're supposed to, re- you know, be respectful to how countries define themselves. For example, even though Indonesia is a Muslim majority country, it's a it is not. It does not refer to itself as an Islamic state so we have to be very careful about that uh, so you know I think we should, we should move on into some of the, the, the law ones that I think those are, those are really interesting because again yeah, maybe is this an area where there's progress? yeah maybe I
2: mean <laughs> who's to I, say? don't force me into too much optimism um, <laughs>
1: That's hard but to let's think.
2: talk about the law um So one of the things I found most interesting is that uh, the style guide uh, demands that you do not basically take sides between uh, a plaintiff and a defendant uh, in a court case. Uh, And it also talks about how you have to refer to people who are suspected of a crime as a suspect, not a criminal. Right. And, I mean, this sense. is pretty normal. This is, you know, for a, a style guide in, you know, for most news organizations anywhere. Uh, but I, th- I don't know when this was inserted into the Xinhua style guide. It could have been this most recent update. I couldn't track down a copy of the previous update, but I believe it's sometime in the last uh, few years. Um, and there does seem to be an effort for at least the state media to treat the courts as impartial, even if we... O- Even if we all know... Is there a problem up there? Even if we all know that, um, you know, courts in China, if you're a suspect, your chances of not being convicted may not be all that great. But at least the state media now is uh, instructed to uh, treat you as innocent until proven guilty.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's interesting. Maybe uh, they seem to have taken... Clues from maybe the way that the American media writes about uh, criminal proceedings. Yeah. That, that, that seems to be in evidence to me, at least. Uh, the uh, another, another strange feature of this is that it seems to have been layered. You can kind of look into this thing and see kind of sedimentary layers that were laid down in previous versions of it. Uh, they have some kind of odd... Pop culture anachronisms in there. The people who, who I think a lot of younger Chinese people won't wouldn't even remember. Um, for example, who who remembers Li Chun?: Okay, yeah, you do. Okay, so no, but not everyone. No, remembers. really. Can we have a proper show of hands? How many people know who Li Yutrain is? Oh, that's not bad.
2: How so, many people know what a Yu, uh, Yumi is? Besides him, how many people don't know what Jin
1: Yumi is? <laughs> <laughs>
2: So, yeah, there's this great section in the, in the band words which uh, specifically mentions uh, Yumi. Do not use words like Yumi uh, to refer to celebrities like Liu Chun. So if you don't know Liu Chun, she was the winner of the 2006 Mongolian uh, uh, Supergirl yogurt. voice competition. Um, you know, it was the first sort of America's Got Talent show in China that went really, really big. And all of the stars, the final four finalists, I guess, uh, had these groups of fans who gave themselves funny names. So, like, uh, Liu Chun, because of the you, her fans were called "Yumi," because, you know, "mi" is like a pun on, on, on fan. So these uh, terms are, are specifically banned. Don't use words like this to refer to entertainers unless you have to because of the context and then put them in quote marks. And
1: there were other ones like 粉丝, which is another word for fans, right? So you couldn't call fans of 郭德红. Who's 郭德红? Of course, he's the Xiangsheng the artist, right? He's a really, really popular one. But again, from some years ago, but you know, they're saying you can't use words like gangsu, which is like a, a way to refer to, to, refer to 郭德红 fans.
2: Uh, perhaps this is also a good time to talk about the dirty words. Right. Because um, that's what I really want to talk about. Um, so, uh, uh, and the reason why I'd like to talk about this is there's a really interesting uh, artifact in this style guide that also comes uh, from an earlier period. 2009, on Baidu, uh, this company, this little company you may have heard of, they have a, you know, an encyclopedia like Wikipedia called uh, Baidu Baikur. And somebody wrote an entry about the 10 legendary beasts of Baidu. So that these beasts were all puns, and they, uh, m- many of them were dirty words. Like, the easiest one to get if you don't speak Chinese is the fucker, yo, <laughs> uh, which is the... Um, is a squid <laughs> um, And uh, there's the <laughs>
1: and,
2: and, and the, 草泥馬, the grass,
1: the grass which, mud horse right?
2: Which is a pun on something You do something to your mother That one doesn't ordinarily do to one's mother uh, And I think that's the only one Of these ten beasts that has actually lasted Yeah, uh, but it's
1: weird Because there were other ones like the 荷蟹, The river crab, right?
2: Yeah, and the river crab didn't make it into the It didn't the make it the into Sima the list this
1: time list. And, What was the know, river crab? That was a pun on what? On harmonization, Harmonized, right? You know. So it was sort of a reference to censorship.
2: But um, the Taunima is definitely worth um, you know, remembering because the, 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 the image that was associated with with it was a llama or, or, alpaca. or, or an alpaca. Some right. people say it must be an alpaca, not a llama, but the, the funny-looking uh, South American animal. And sort of that symbol account. remains at least for slightly older people. I think you know, people born in the 80s and 90s maybe not so much, but old people like us... Um, you know, think of the, the grass mud horse as a, a symbol of uh, opposing censorship.
1: Like, yeah, so I, I remember I worked at Baidu for many years, as many of you know, and uh, walking around you would often see people with these little stuffed plushy alpacas on their desks, and you know what that meant. It was like a raised fist of defiance in the form of a plushie. The <laughs>
2: And there are plenty of other dirty words, uh, which you can find on our website. And, you know, um, this is a family podcast, so I'm not going to explain all of them in too much detail. Uh, But there are words for uh, anal sex, uh, which you're not allowed to use, slang for anal sex. Uh, There are a variety of words involving your mother. Um, And uh, apparently... None of these are acceptable to be used in official Xinhua uh, news uh, stories. Um, but it is rather interesting that they went to such a great length of detail to describe these dirty words. Because if you look in the AP style book, or you know, the New York Times house style guide, or you, know, uh, you don't generally see an extensive list of slang words for vaginas and penises. But Xinhua somehow felt the need to do this. And my explanation of this is that What happened in you know the first decade of the twenty-first century was all the Chinese state media organizations had to hire a lot of young people who knew how to work the internet, and many of these young people, uh, you know, they were kind of digital natives, and you know when they saw slang words and often very dirty words, they didn't necessarily have a reaction that this should not be in a newspaper because they'd been reading you know their QQ instant messaging feed. entire adolescence, not Xinhua copy. Um, and I think that's why there's so many dirty words in because they must have, you know, editors must have been finding them in their stories and having to get rid of them.
1: I know I have a lot of trouble with this at home. I mean, my, my, my kids have these very clever ways of, of, of finding ways to almost swear in Chinese. Like, you know, they, they will refer to well, I'm not going to say it. <laughs> so I can't say it without getting myself in trouble here. I'll have to beep it anyway. But I think it's the, the, the international relations section, I think, is, is really fascinating. Uh, there are some, some great examples in there from which you can sort of see uh, what, how China treats a lot of, of, of these other groups within other countries or other countries themselves. You can, you can actually infer... An awful lot about this from them. Uh, for example, you are not supposed to refer to Hamas, which is, uh, of course, the the ruling party in in occupied Palestine, uh, a terrorist group. Or an extremist group, uh, you are never allowed to refer to the so- former Soviet Union. Just use Soviet Union. I'm I'm not sure what that what does that mean. Why can't you say qian su Lian? Because you don't want to draw attention to the dissolution of a communist country. Would be uh, my ah, reading of it. Right, 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 right. And you're not supposed to call the civil armed forces in eastern Ukraine. Uh, you're not supposed to call them pro-Russian armed forces in Ukraine or separatists. Uh, which is which is odd because they are. Pro-Russian forces in eastern Ukraine, who are seeking separate.
2: But Sinhua doesn't
1: want to push
2: Putin's buttons. Um, also, uh, it's in the slang section, but international relations. India comes up. So one of the terms you're not allowed to use is a slang word that you find on the Chinese internet for India. Which is. What is that? Is, Let me. Uh, fushiguo. Oh, no, somebody knows it. So uh, Fu is the country of floating corpses referring to the corpses that float down the Ganges River. Uh, and you can find this word on the Chinese internet as a kind of derogatory word for, for India.
1: Right. They didn't think it was necessary to include the word that I just heard somebody say in the audience, which is an a, a a ethnic slur uh, against Indians. But it was interesting that given what's happening right now in Dolkham uh, in, in Bhutan, uh, that this would be included in the list. Uh, one of the interesting ones, another one that just comes to mind, is you are not allowed to refer to the Belt and Road Initiative as the Belt and Road Strategy, not a zhan And this is one of those ones that I think is peculiar to the Chinese language because what is the Jan in zhan lue? What does that mean? War, right. So it, it, it connotes a militaristic strategy. So the Belt and Road Initiative is peaceful, obviously, and it must not ever could note uh, any bellicosity, must never hint at any bellicosity. That one it makes a lot of a pretty obvious sense to me, yeah?
2: Yeah, it makes sense. My favorite, aside from the dirty words, I think, is is something that I, I'm pretty sure is a, a, an addition of the most recent revision. Uh, and this revision basically is a d- destruction of the uh, sl- uh, slogan legacy of Hu Jintao. So, w- one of Hu Jintao, I think, his major uh, contribution to the great tradition of Communist Party slogans uh, and what a great was tradition. the eight honors and the eight disgraces. Barong who remembers that, yeah? Some only three of you. Eight honors and eight disgraces. I spent so many years of my life... Uh,
1: trying to memorize them. Yeah. So, you spent eight years of your life trying, trying to commit all eight of the disgraces.
2: <laughs> so I mean, the eight honors and disgraces was a list of behaviors that you should model yourself after and that, you know, negative examples that you shouldn't follow that came out under Hu Jintao, which was a kind of a, a very weak uh, attempt to... Um, imposed some morality on the party i think uh, t- to a great extent you know so you shouldn't be uh, you know uh, live an excessively luxurious lifestyle you should be thrifty you should be diligent you shouldn't be lazy you know stuff like this so well you that's you gone
1: basically this is xi jinping saying grass mud horse you
2: yeah out 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 with the eight honors and disgraces they didn't completely destroy it it says instead of using the eight honors and eight disgraces call it uh, fulfill the socialist concept of honor and disgrace. But in practice, nobody even uses that. That, that rolls off
1: the tongue just so much better yeah. after all, doesn't it? <laughs> Jerry, what do you, do you want? To, should we take some questions? Think?
2: I, th- I think it's about time. Yeah, I, I, I think, think there's that'll just be more one fun. more thing I'd like to mention okay. before we we'll take questions, which than. is is a lot about Hong Kong and Taiwan. And if you follow, you know, Hong Kong and Taiwan issues, it's worth a look. Um, and sort of the, the, the heart of it, I think, it, is in one uh, sentence, which says differentiates national frontier, uh, so Guo Jing, and customs boundary. So, you know, because when you go to an airport in China, the Hong Kong flights, the uh, Macau flights, go together with the international flights, and you have to go through passport control and customs. But this is very awkward because they're not other countries. They're not supposed to be other countries. So the Xinhua... Uh, idea is to uh, use various words to continually indicate that these are not different countries. And in some ways, the heart of it is you don't call it a border. You call it a customs
1: boundary. I think the whole point of, of tonight's little discussion, this short discussion, is, is just how important it is to parse the language and how much information you can actually get from what is not allowed, uh, just as much as, as you can get from what's actually proactively said. Uh, and in a, when a document like this appears, another that I would point to is is if you don't already read it, the the China Digital Times. I think Anne from the China Digital Times is here in the audience. Yeah, uh, they published this outstanding thing uh, called the directives from the Ministry of Truth, which uh, which purports to be, and I think it, it, it quite accurately reflects what is ac- uh, the, the words that are actually. Uh, band or directives that are given to uh, media organizations in the way that they report and they put this out quite regularly. It's a fascinating way to, to track what's on the mind. Uh, it's, it's, it's like the equivalent of reading Donald Trump's tweets. It's it's really important, an important way to follow uh. Jeremy, would it be even a bit anti-Semitic to point out that your beard is now looking almost rabbinical?
2: Well, coming from you, maybe. But I have to say my my, uh, father and uncle, who, unlike me, have Jewish mothers and therefore actually Jewish, both said I look like a rabbi. So uh, if they could say it, I I think you're okay. Uh,
1: Honorary Jew that I am. Okay. Uh, Anyway, I see evidence of deliberate shaping going on, and that's a fair sight better than it. When was the last time I saw you. I'm going to assume that that has something to do with a certain orange-handled grooming device that you now it possess. It does,
2: indeed. It does, indeed. I had lost my razor, and just that's why I started growing a beard. But Harry's sent us... To the rescue.
1: To the rescue. Beautiful
2: <laughs> orange razors.
1: I am loving mine. Uh, it's it's keeping everything nice and neat. Uh, on a recent road trip I had with Fanfan and the kids, every time Johnny caught sight of a flash of orange, he'd get start urging me to shave the whole damn thing off. But, you know, I have... I, Made peace with the fact that I'm never going to grow out this, like, full, luscious Lord Guan-length beard, but hopefully I can at least have the respectable facial hair of a minor warlord of the Three Kingdoms, period.
2: (laughs) (laughs) So, dear listeners, get a great shave at a fair price, like the over three million guys who have already switched over to Harry's from their expensive corporate razors
1: <laughs> claim your free trial offer from harry's today it's a 13 value for free when you sign up you need only to cover shipping in my case that was like three bucks so
2: that includes a weighted razor with five
1: precision
2: engineered blades with a lubricating strip and the little trimmer blade on top
1: that kaiser likes so much yes i do like that little trimmer slip but you also get some rich lathering shave gel and a travel blade cover
2: to get your free trial, just go to harrys.com slash subchina. That's H-A-R-R-Y-S dot com slash subchina right now.
1: Hey, and uh, thanks very much. And now back to the show. Okay, so here's what we're going to do is we're going to uh, have anyone who has questions is invited to come up to the front here. And, uh, and, and ask away. Try to keep them fairly short and snappy and not so insulting. And please refrain from using the 38 banned words. Uh, don't be shy, people. Come on up. Come on up. Yes, sir. Speak into that microphone right there so that we can capture your
3: mellifluous voice on tape. Bill Jones, I'm with Executive Intelligence Review. It's a magazine, weekly magazine. Uh, somebody told me that uh, I've never seen your program before. and Somebody told me, you've got to look at Seneca because that's the way to really learn about China. Well, thank you. Uh, I- I'm very disappointed. I mean, I-, I understand your take on things, but it-, it seems to me I've worked for 40 years now on the issue of trying to create a program for the development of third world countries. I've worked with Indira Gandhi. I've worked with President Portillo in Mexico to try and create a system in which these countries could have the option for developing. And it's always been opposed by the powers that be. It's always been shot down. Hmm. But now with China and the Belt and Road Initiative, which I call an initiative, is creating the greatest development program in the world. Uh, And the reason they call it an initiative and not a strategy is that although China benefits from it, They create good neighbors, they create goodwill, they create, you know, their soft power. It is open to everybody. And every time President Xi Jinping comes here to the United States, he says to President Trump, but he said to President Obama, you should be a part of this. You should be a part. Maybe we could do infrastructure here in the United States so people could get from Washington to New York.
1: And instead you get a lot of sneering, right? (laughs) Right. Instead you get a lot of sniping and people making fun of it and...
3: And the, the issue is that – I understand your take on China. Look, I've I followed China's politics for a long time. I know that you can – I know a lot of the, the crazy things that are going on. But this initiative and this directionality which uh, is being created – Let me, let me, let me, let me up there and, and riff on this is a while, this is – I, I think, totally agree. I'm I gonna think gonna you should give there. it – that's right. So equals, I
1: totally agree with you on this, and in okay. fact, if you would, would listen to the last podcast that we recorded about the Belt and Road Initiative, this point was was driven home very, very solidly. We all, I think, Jeremy, you would certainly agree, uh, think that, that there should be less sneering about it and that people should understand. Look, uh, we, we talked about a... a uh, we had a conversation with Joe Nye at, at, uh, at the Kennedy School in Harvard. Who, who talked about... Uh, the, the, the Kindleberger trap, which he said was uh, something we should worry about more than the Thucydides trap. The Kindleberger trap, he, just in a nutshell, uh, was the, disaster, the, the idea that the disasters of the 1920s and the 30s uh, leading up to you know, the, the rise of fascism and, and the Holocaust uh, were the result of the failure of the rising power at the time, the United States, to provide public goods in the world. Uh, that, that was that was the problem, that, that uh, the United States should have been uh, trying to supplant the, the UK's fallen pound as the stable currency, should have been building uh, infrastructure, should have been uh, encouraging global trade. But instead, we passed this bugger-thy-neighbor tariff, the Smoot-Hawley tariffs, and closed ourselves off, and that's, that's w- where disaster is. Now, now we see China, the rising power in the world, shouldn't we applaud it Trying to provide public goods in the world, I think that's where you're going with this, right?
3: And and work with them and do the same absolutely. thing. Absolutely, you know. So. I mean, they are all making the offer. We should do that. Create good ties. I and absolutely agree with
1: you. Absolutely okay. agree. Thank you. That's a that's a very astute comment. Come on up.
3: Uh, hello, my name's Colleen O'Connor. I work for CET Academic Programs uh, for Study Abroad, and I'll bring it back to the original topic of your podcast. Simple question: I'm wondering if these new rules are impacting foreign journalists. In China as well, in no. their work.
2: No, this is, this is Xinhua's style guide. So this doesn't even necessarily impact other news organizations. Although one can, you know, if Xinhua is doing it, then it's okay to do for the whole country's media, basically. Um, it won't have any effect on foreign, foreign journalists at all. They're just not in the same system.
3: Okay, thank you.
1: Okay, who's next?
3: Hi, I have a question. I have a question about the use of the word uh, initiative instead of strategy. Is that more for internal purposes that Chinese citizens are viewing it as peaceful? Or is it more uh, for other nations reading material from China uh, perceiving that as peaceful?
1: My sense is that it's it's intended to be uh, external. It's it's being read. So um, they are obviously careful about uh, how... The the name of of the I mean it was called one belt one road and people thought that that was just a not particularly sonorous um, name and so they, they changed it to the belt and road initiative Un- unfortunately the belt and road forum had an unpleasant acronym uh, but uh, they're, they're they're at least trying to communicate the idea better. And I don't it,
2: think you dropped that joke. Bahf. <laughs> right. <no. laughs> Um, you know, this is an interesting point. I think it also ties in with the gentleman's earlier comment. Is, you know, that the, the Chinese Communist Party are very good at a lot of things. But one thing they're not good at at all is communicating with foreigners. I mean, they're hopeless. Uh, they spend billions and billions on, you know, overseas media, most of which uh, is either ignored or, you know, just uh, laughed at, uh, is the sad sad truth. And the Belt and Road is a great example of this just in the language because it's completely counterintuitive. The road is in the sea. The road is the maritime road the maritime Silk Road the belt is on the land you know? they could have just called it, called it the new Silk Road and it would sound glamorous it would sound slightly exotic it would say everything it needed to say about interconnectivity between continents and trade well, to be fair instead y- 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 of which, Yi
1: Lu sounds fine in Chinese it but, sounds fine in Chinese right, but, right, right. but I'm
2: talking about the message to the outside world and one of the reasons why the Chinese government struggles so much to get traction with its initiatives is that you know, what they have is a failure to communicate
1: Right, so I mean, at least communicate to to the the jaded, cynical cosmopolitans like you. Right? <laughs> you have a question? Come on up. Point that mic again. Yeah, there you go. <laughs>
2: Thank you guys again for indulging us, China nerds here in DC. Um, I have two quick questions. One
1: is, um, since you guys talk about a lot of contentious issues, uh, have you guys ever received
3: any? Uh, strongly worded emails from the Chinese government or anyone affiliated with that. And my other quick question is to you, Kaiser. Is there any cool new
1: Chinese metal bands we should be uh, on the lookout for? <laughs>
2: I'll take the first question. You take a second. Okay. As a podcast, we haven't. My former incarnation as the um, editor of Dunway, my old website, uh, sadly, the website was blocked and I got hassled by nasty men uh, but Seneca has never had any kind of problem and I think there are a couple of reasons. One is we're clearly complete panda huggers who love our motherland, Um, but the other reason it's in English usually quite fast conversational English and it's not easily searchable. Um, So So my
1: theory is that anybody whose English would be good enough to be able to understand a very colloquial fast-paced podcast like this would be too valuable to be tasked with something so minor as to listen to a colloquial fast-paced English podcast that only lands on in, in English. So that's my operating theory. So why, but, uh, uh, as to metal bands, I mean, I've been gone from China for a year. Things change really, very quickly. Uh, but there are a couple that I think are, are, are really good. Suffocated is one of them. Uh, they're sort of a thrash band with some deathy stuff going on. Uh, there's another one called... Uh, I hesitate to, to, to full-throatedly recommend them. They, they have some stuff that is embarrassingly cringeworthy, but uh, they're called Death by Sorrow. Yu is their name. So yeah, those are, those are two I would, I would recommend. And, uh, anyone else want to know about metal bands in China? <laughs> we got another question. Come on up. Come on up.
0: My name is uh, Hello. My name is Xiao Heng. I uh, have a question about the legal session. Uh, you mentioned that the uh, news Xinhua asks journalists to differentiate criminals and suspects, but on the other hand, like CCTV and other state um, news organizations, sometimes force celebrity suspects to confess their. Like what they did uh, in front Absolutely. of the cameras. So how do you view this?
2: And then Xinhua runs the CCTV footage on Xinhua's website. So yeah, it's. I mean, I think I did say that, um, you know, it, it's progress in at least the way they're talking about it. But it doesn't necessarily mean that uh, the change is permeated through society. You know, I, I think. I mean, even in America, right? It's start, you know, you, American campuses are supposedly very politically correct and it's very easy to offend anybody but you know I live in the south and a few miles away from where I live there's dudes with confederate flags you know on their on their porches and people who use the most despicable racist language so I mean I I do think that the actual you know what is going on in, in society and what is going on inside Chinese media organizations, I mean, the progress is uneven. The fact that there is an awareness that, in theory, a suspect should be innocent before he's guilty is good, even if, in practice, that's not the case. And you're right about the TV confessions. I mean, that has been one of the most freaky and alarming Things of the Xi Jinping era, and I've 2014, 15 well, it's,
1: phenomenon. Right?
2: It's it's tailed off a little bit, but it you know it's still going on, and uh, it's horrible. I mean, I've seen people I know twice on TV in the you know waistcoat, looking you know. Messed up confessing to whatever they did, it's it, 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 it does feel you know very, very uncivilized. Were they and, both named Peter? Uh, <laughs> and um, uh, it, it's some it's an area of civil society and of law where China still has a lot of progress to make, but that doesn't mean we can't recognize that Xinhua news agency is at least making an effort.
1: You know, there's a new television show, uh, that, that that's been put out by the state itself, actually, it, it uh, features. Corrupt officials, these tigers, actually, who are are doing these mea culpas. These people have presumably already gone through the whole Shuangui system, and they're appearing on camera confessing to their crimes. Uh, I think there's a lot of surmise that it's in exchange for more lenient sentencing. Uh, that may that may be what what's actually happening here. Let's get some more questions. Hey, hello, Kaiser Jeremy. My name is Robbie Shields. I'm with the Hopkins Nine Jing Center. Right. Welcome you both to Washington,
2: uh, Jeremy. You just mentioned a little bit talking about you living in the South, living in Tennessee. Kaiser, I know you live in North Carolina. I'm curious, how we're in a kind of a unique market here in D.C., right? How have you found moving to the American South to be in terms of the presence of China and the influence in China in the
1: American South, as opposed to a place like Washington, D.C.? He moves here first, so he gets to go first.
2: Well, uh, you know, I mean, obviously the first greatest suffering is the lack of good Chinese restaurants. (laughs) So um, Nashville has two okay Chinese restaurants, um, and I've had to learn to cook. So that's just my daily misery, uh, and I'm going to cry about it on stage. Um, In terms of the sort of China community, I mean, uh, Nashville, I think it's even smaller than uh, in uh, the research triangle where, where Kaiser lives. There is a, a, a tiny um, you know, uh, American-Chinese population that's been there a few generations, scattered around the South, really. Um, there is a slightly newer contingent of... Uh, Uh, Taiwanese and mainland uh, Chinese people who have moved um, in the 80s and 90s, and now there's a lot of students. You know, Nashville has quite a lot of universities, so there are more and more uh, uh, students from from mainland China. But it's still very early days. I mean, we have nothing like this kind of crowd in Nashville you know the China events I'm involved in the Tennessee China business network and we put on events and um I won't tell you exactly how small our crowds are because <laughs> this is not the city for talking about how small your crowds are but then <laughs> <laughs> but um it's it, it is it's a it's a little tougher than um being here my job, fortunately, you know, Kai and I work together online and I work with a team of editors and, and you know, our, our, the founder of our company, they're all in New York. And we do a lot of stuff online. So I, I feel, and, you know, with China itself, I mean, you know, WeChat uh, has means I, I feel still in very close contact with my friends in China. Um, but uh, it's early days.
1: That's right. So I'm, I moved to an area that is not very the South in the South. It's in Chapel Hill, North Carolina is where I live. And of course, down the road at, in Durham, there's Duke University and, and right next door is of course the University of North Carolina, both of which have very strong China programs. There's large communities of China-related uh, people, not only people who are China watchers, but also uh, the Chinese themselves. What's so been chiefly fascinating to me is to see sort of the the lines of schism within that community, especially as as I witnessed in in the year 2016 during the election. uh, I saw that there was a bright line between people who had come to the community and been working there, uh, who had been graduate students at UNC or Duke, who had taken jobs in the triangle at pharmaceutical or IT firms, who who had put down roots there and raised children there. They were pretty uniformly uh, Hillary Clinton supporters, whereas the newer immigrants uh, were often quite strident and, and quite uh, vocal supporters of of He Whose Name Shall Not Be Spoken. <laughs> and uh, it, it's been interesting, because I've been trying to get active locally in politics. I've, I'm working, uh, doing communications for a town council uh, candidate named Gu Hongbin, who is uh, somebody who came to the con- this country in the early 1990s and is uh, very progressive and, and a totally wonderful person. Great community of, of Chinese people, a good Chinese school, uh, and I found an awful lot of interest there in uh, what we're, what you know, Jeremy and I have been doing. A lot of people. Who will come up to me and say, "Hey, you know, I heard your voice just now. I listened to your podcast. I'm really, you know, I heard you had moved here. It's really great to finally meet you. And it's it's uh it's been really uh just great to see what kind of an interest there is in the community over uh I mean in the non sort of China focused community in what's happening in China. So I'm I'm I love where I live right now. It's it's absolutely terrific. I highly recommend it. Come on up. Hi guys, uh, I have a question. I was wondering if
0: how like powerful you believe the attempt to control discourse on a state level? How it trickles down to indi- individual behavior? Because I would think in terms of climate change, for example, in the United States, that discourse and affecting people, but relating back to like the hua and like the common Chinese person,
3: kind of.
1: Yeah, I think there's this no, uh, there's there's no question that I mean, it, you, look look, any one of us who has good friends who are Chinese uh, knows that. There will be times in the course of the discussion where you will hit something that smells suspiciously like an unexamined assumption that was that was sort of an artifact of of, of political education. Uh, whether it's something like Tibet is, was, and always shall be part, and you know, in irreducible part of China, it, or uh, it's always the the, the, the various Ts, right, Tiananmen and Tibet and Taiwan and, and things like that, where there's sort of this uh, there's this irreducible core. Uh, That, I think, shouldn't surprise anybody. Uh, I think uh, we're kidding ourselves if we think anyone in any society is totally immune to uh, the the, the official discourse, to the the controlling effects of it. I certainly am. I'd be happy to admit it. Totally brainwashed by liberal media.
2: But I think you mentioned climate change. I think that's an interesting example when it comes to China, because I think that actually went the other way around. Um, And in fact, it's not climate change in China. It's air pollution. It's a a different problem, but it's it's the smog. That's what changed things, you know. And it was really the U.S. Embassy's Twitter box, you know, measuring the air quality on top of the embassy in, in Beijing that first made people aware that the stuff you could see in the air was bad stuff. Um, And that was the beginning of a real change, I believe, in the the Chinese government's thinking uh, about the environment. Uh, Or, you know, perhaps that change had started already, but it certainly accelerated it. Um, and I think part of that change has also been a, a greater commitment to climate change, because in China it is seen as part of the same thing. You've got to, re, you know, reduce emissions, and that will hopefully reduce the effects of climate change, but it will also clean up the air. Yeah, uh, the same
1: thing as putting hydrocarbons. Um, uh, I mean, it's the same, same hydrocarbon problem.
2: Right? Yeah. So. Um, and, I mean, you know, one example of the way that it, it came sort of bottom-up um, – I mean, the, the famous uh, film by the CCTV host, Under the Dome, which, I mean, okay, she's an establishment person. She was a CCTV news uh, presenter, but it was her own efforts, and she may have had some backing from some people in the government. But, you know, the, the later banning and deletion of the film was pretty clear uh, sign that this certainly didn't come, you know, from the top down. And that film, nonetheless, was, you know, hugely influential. The People's Daily wrote about it.
1: Well, there was imprimatur. I mean, she had reached so many people in the MEP. There, were some very, very, there was some senior backing behind that film. Yeah. This didn't come from the grassroots. No, it wasn't a
2: grassroots, but right. it wasn't a, a state led
1: discourse. Right. Great. Next question.
0: Hi, uh, my name is Ray Winborn, and I work at the Emerging Markets Private Equity Association. Part of my job is to look at uh, venture capital activity in China, Mm. and so I've been following very closely the bike sharing wars and the increasingly large fundraising rounds that you're getting from Mobike and Ofo. Uh, I'd really like to hear kind of your thoughts on this, the bike sharing and and broadly more of the sharing economy companies that we're seeing popping up and getting so much attention in China. Um, Personally, I think it's kind of uh, (laughs) overhyped. Uh, but I just want to know what your thoughts are
1: well look I mean there's no question that it's over these valuations are they're abs- absurd they're, this is the, the latest iteration of a phenomenon that we've seen many times before in China and it really goes I mean even before you could go back to internet video sites in 2007 2008 where there were literally thousands of YouTube clones there were literally thousands of Groupon clones of, of, of you know deal of the day sites for a little while uh, there were tons and tons of, of companies that were doing uh, uh, what's called O2O, you know, online to offline. O2O is, was, it was especially an egregious instance of this because, again, valuations were super high. Subsidies were were, were enormous. Profits were far, far away. All of the, the participants had the backing of one of the major BAT companies. It was uh, a bloody... Bloody bay. And the idea was that one big ass shark was gonna swim out into the blue water at the end of that and that it would be But you know, one thing that we need to remember is market behavior had fundamentally changed because of all of these things. Now look at the after 20 the percentage of meals that are eaten, you know, through delivery, look at the number of, of movie theater tickets that are boxed now online, the market consumer behavior has fundamentally changed, just as it has now, with bike sharing. Now, is this an efficient model right now? No, it is not. Uh, is it uh, free of problems? Absolutely not. I mean, you can't even walk down the goddamn street now in any major city without falling over a bike, a yellow bike, a blue bike, an orange bike, whatever. I mean, there's, there's, they're piled up everywhere. Everyone's seen these these pictures. But I think in, in time, it will get straightened out, and it, it will end up being a good thing
2: also i mean bike sharing is solving a very very real problem that all cities and particularly chinese cities which are big and overpopulated have Um, it's so to me you know they may be overvalued but these companies are solving a real problem and the reason there are so many bikes and so many people riding them is because it's a it's something people need um but uh you know Shared umbrellas, on-demand umbrellas, or, you know, the most ridiculous one came out yesterday I, on Weibo. There was a, a posting about this company that is installing these mini capsules on the streets of Beijing that Even are sleeping. mini gyms. So there's a uh, treadmill right. inside right. the capsule. So you scan your, your, your smartphone, you get in there. Uh, so, you know, you're walking down the street in Beijing, and it's hot and dusty because it's summer. Uh, and you're going to want to open a little hot box and, and run on a treadmill for half an hour. I mean, you know, to me, that's ridiculous. Um... I can't see businesses like that working. Another one that was really funny that has already flamed out was a um, they were calling it a shared sleep space. Right. Uh, I mean, sharing on demand, I think, is a better word. So again, little capsule, they put them initially, I think, mostly in and you and know, the, the high-tech era of Beijing. And the idea is you can just go and sleep there for half an hour. But I think they've already been forced to close because of concerns about you know sanitation. And obviously, in China, where you're supposed to register Register with the police uh, you know the if you stay in any hotel in China you know they're supposed to register your identity documents with the police that day um, you know being able to basically operate a hotel without the system in place was going to get them into trouble sooner or later so I mean I think there's a lot of ridiculous frothy nonsense but some of those core businesses are, are going to be valuable
1: so what about in the US is the question so I mean I
2: like I, maybe you could try a public bus here first I don't know you know uh, <laughs> I, I mean I could see New answer. York you know DC maybe uh, you know where I live probably not very soon <laughs>
1: right it's hilly where I live so. good question let's bring it yeah, come on up so there is something right on on tr- transsexuals i think
2: uh in that list i don't i then i don't recall it i i don't think there was anything about um lgbt uh issues in that list but maybe my memory is is failing me. I mean, the Chinese press, it depends where you look, you know, um, uh, you know uh, the terminology generally, uh, you know, homosexual, is the, is the most common you'll see in, in, in state media. And the, the um, attitude towards it, I think, you know, varies. I mean, central state media tends to kind of ignore, you know, just not talk about it. Uh, whereas in some of the more commercial media websites uh, and, and magazines it 's talked about not that differently from the way it is here
1: one of the most popular television hosts of the television show in China right now is is a an openly transsexual woman uh, named Jing who is a, a very famous dancer
2: yeah one of the fir- well certainly the most famous uh, Receiver of a um, you know a sex change operation in China in the nineteen nineties amazingly right. enough
1: friends of both of us right, right back then we used to hang out with her all the time so yeah uh, I think you know that that whole discourse is evolving in China I think um, it's still quite far behind a place like Taiwan for example where gay marriage is about to be made legal uh, it's I think though, moving probably faster than anyone could have imagined twenty years ago. It would have been difficult to imagine, you know, 20 years ago, uh, homosexuality was still considered a mental disease. Uh, it was st- still actually considered a, a disease, and it and is It was it in the no disease
2: uh, catalogue, and it was punished as a liu mang zui, like the crime of hooliganism. Right. Um.
1: So uh, there is progress. I don't think it's, uh, you know, it's, it's obviously not as fast as many of us would like it to be. Uh, but uh, this is an area where I encounter among a lot of people who are otherwise very politically liberal A lot of conservatism I mean, I think sexual conservatism in China Oddly, sometimes you wonder why But it, it seems to run quite deep, especially when it comes to, to uh, LGBT issues uh, And the media is, is way behind on this
3: Good question, thanks Come on up May I have a question? Yeah Yeah, okay you so first. yeah working in DC in the anti-corruption sector for the FCPA so policy so I have a question regarding the next meeting or conference happening in October October 11, you know, yeah, yeah the, um, so my question is could you share some sh- thoughts about the anti-corruption movement and what's uh, your perspective for the next term or next five years and uh
1: that's a the, big question. I, I mean, know, and I, the follow-up question
3: would be: What do you think about the ordinary people, a or businessman, um, view about the corruption or bribery, or what do you think? Yeah, just very general. That's, yes, that's a very, concern. very.
1: I mean, those are huge questions. Uh, anti-corruption, obviously, uh, you know, look, there isn't a single way to look at it. I mean, the, the classic formation, you know, the way that this this question was often posed by a lot of China watchers was. Is this a political purge, or is it an honest-to-God anti-corruption drive? And obviously I think the answer was it's a bit of both. Uh, Now, the other questions are, is this uh, clearing ground for for, uh, future more sustainable economic growth, Uh, or has this so cowed people and scared them from taking any kind of personal initiative that it's actually a drag on Chinese economic development? And again, it's a bit of both. I I, I really don't have, uh, you know, a a, a black and white answer for you. Uh, Jeremy, you want to?
2: I think the only thing I'd add to that is uh, I first went to China in 1995. And like a lot of ignorant Westerners, I kind of, the only thing I really knew about China was Tiananmen Square in 1989, Liu Su, And I kept on wanting to ask people about this kind of thing. And, you know, this was 1995. It was a much less free China than it is now in many respects. You know, people, especially slightly older people, were, you know, very, very uncomfortable talking about politics with a foreigner. Um, but the one thing that even people who were absolutely loyal to the Communist Party would always complain to me about was corruption. Um, and I do think that, you know, for a lot of ordinary people, they see the anti-corruption campaign as a, you know, whole uh, absolutely good thing. Um, uh, and I think that's still the case. Um, so uh, what it'll mean for the future, I don't want to make a
1: prediction. Okay, great. You had a question. Please come up. Yeah, let's, let's make one more after you if there's somebody who, if you want to raise your hand. If there are any more. Okay, you'll be the last.
0: Great. Hi, Kaiser. Hi, Jeremy. It's good to see you again. Um, My name is Michelle. Um, As a Chinese national living in the U.S., I constantly have the feeling that I'm missing out or every time I go back to China, I feel like falling out of trend. So as someone who's lived in China for many, many years and left and you guys are here, um, I was wondering what kind of benefits or upside are you seeing to look at Into China, looking in from far away, than being right in the middle of it.
1: I don't see any upsides. (laughs) I mean, I don't think we have a a clearer perspective on it. I think that, like you, I we have to struggle with being out of touch, without with you know not knowing. That's why we take frequent trips back to China. Uh, We're we're constantly you know talking to our friends in China to to try to keep up. It's a struggle. We don't. We there's no benefit. There,
2: there, there, there's been an upside for me. Um, you know, after my website was blocked in 2009, I became increasingly bitter about the Chinese government. And, you know, some other things happened, you know, uh, you know t- televised confessions of people I knew among them. And um, I-, I was becoming one of those nightmare foreigners that you find in China who've lived there their whole lives and they hate China. And they can't say anything good about China, and yet they stay. And I was in danger of becoming that horrible guy. Um, and leaving has given me the space to, uh, you know, calm down and not take things personally. Uh, and I think look at China with a, a more dispassionately, um, you know. I mean, even if you listen to the last year or so of our podcasts, um, I'm going to say a rude word here, but I called the Communist Party a bunch of. F- um, which is not maybe the most responsible thing to do, you know, for a, a podcast that's trying to examine issues of China very seriously. And I think part of that was a mental condition of being too stressed. And being in the US has certainly relieved me of that. Yay. <laughs> now he's going to have to do bleeping.
1: Yeah. We were doing so well, Jeremy. We were really doing so well.
2: <laughs> well, you were the one who promised dirty words at the beginning. We couldn't <laughs> let <Chinese>. them down.
1: <laughs> okay. Hey. So, hey, thank you all very, very much. For, we had one more. We had one more question, right? Yeah. Come on up.
0: Um, hi, thank you for being here. My name is Yan. Also, I'm a Chinese national, and allow me to disclose that I'm 29 this year. Um, we have touched upon a lot of people, minorities, LGBT uh, community, um, even Tibetans, Taiwanese. But I wonder uh, if anyone has touched upon gender equality or gender perception in China, especially for women, Um As far as I know, feminism is not so much of a positive word in mainland China. And a lot of people either don't understand it or treat it as women's efforts to overpower men. So I was wondering in your experience first, have you ever seen any official language discouraging feminism or any um, female efforts to not only gain equal rights, but in social levels? Like for example, I'm pressured into marrying, I'm pressured into giving kids, especially having a second one. And being here is actually very great because I don't have that kind of pressure, but it seems like the feminist trend in China is very um, not encouraged. And I wonder if you have any opinions on that and if China's society has some kind of social level of work to do regarding Females, not just like rights, but actually the awareness that women are not just about mothers and their value is more than just being a wife and a mother. Thank you.
2: Well, I think we have actually done a podcast with Lisa Hong Fincher, who's written a book about. uh, Leftover Women, left right? over women, which um, was a term that, um, you know, she traces back to the All-China Women's Federation, which is the state's, the, uh, what do you call it, a gongo, like the, the Chinese government's non-government organization dedicated to basically feminism originally. I mean, it should be to uplifting women. And they've been encouraging, uh, later traced back the history of this word. And, you know, she finds that, Uh, the All-China Federation of Women have been encouraging this word, and this word is one of the words that's used to shame women who are 29 and not married kind of thing. So um, I think there certainly is uh, some kind of, I mean, this is not the era of women hold up half the sky in official discourse. And I think in a lot of ways, uh, women's position has gone backwards over over the decades of, uh, reform and opening up. But it's, it's, it's quite a mixed um, thing. I mean, you know, uh, we, we've we done a podcast um, with uh, Virginia Kamsky, who's one of the most successful foreign businesswomen uh, who's operated in China, you know, who talks about how in some ways China is actually a really easy place to do business for women compared uh, to the United States and especially compared to some uh, some other East Asian countries such as Japan or, or, or Korea. So I, I think, um, you know, you can certainly see the state is scared of activists. You know, the Feminist Five uh, were locked up uh, a couple of years ago for being a little too noisy. And there's obviously fear about activism. Um, I haven't seen a ban on the word feminism that no, I can recall. no,
1: nothing like that. I think, like Jeremy said, it's a very uh, complicated situation. I had the, the, the privilege of working uh, very closely with Jennifer Lee, Lee Sinja, who was the CFO of Baidu and uh, a terrific and very dedicated feminist. Uh, she was sort of of the Sheryl Sandberg sort of lean-in kind of executive feminism, just sort of that most of the obstacles are in your own mind, and you just have to sort of sometimes ignore the structural uh, problems and, and just sort of power through those, you know acknowledging that there are structural uh, um, deep and, and very, very profound structural obstacles to, to gender equality in China, but sometimes you need to power through them. Now, one thing that she said to me, which I thought I, I chewed on for a while and I thought it was really interesting, was that when it comes to China, workforce participation by women was obligatory until really well until into the 1990s. Nobody, few women had the luxury. Of opting out of the workforce and so this this added this very strange dynamic to uh, the whole discourse on women and work on women and their economic contributions so that I would frequently encounter women who I would say were you know clearly qualify as, as feminists who wanted really nothing more than uh, to not have to work uh, which is a, a sort of a strange position to find find one in but you know Given the path of China's economic development, we we have to understand that. So it's it's not possible to simply take uh, our experience here in the West and 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 superimpose that on China and expect to see you know identical results. We need to you know look at it within its own context now. That is not to suggest that, that we should excuse any of the, uh, I mean, I think the, the frankly very abominable things that we see. It's still quite routine now when you're applying for a job at a Chinese company to be, well, first to be asked to submit a photo before you, you're, you're interviewed you know, with your height, your weight, your marital status. None of this would be thinkable in, uh, in, in the US. It's quite normal for uh, an employer, even women often, who will ask you. In, in the course of an employment, do you plan to have children any time in the near future? Do you already have children? What, I mean, th- things like this. So this is this is uh, these are some of the many structural obstacles that still exist. I mean, they're, they're deeper rooted than that. Look, we still have a bad sex selective abortion problem in China. The gender skew is really really bad. It's 116 to 100 right now. That is not. Uh, that does does not say good things about the, the the sort of deep gender attitudes in china, so lots of, of work to still be done uh, and there 's i think m- papering over it and and only pointing to the successes is uh, a very bad bad approach well on that happy note <laughs> thank you all for coming very 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 much uh, let 's let's, one more round of applause for the organizers who is The all
2: Okay. Um, and. Also, um, the, the organizers very kindly uh, re, uh, paid for our travel up here. And in order to uh, cover those costs, they would love it if you would drink a lot. So we're at commanding you drink. Get up <laughs>
1: here, buy beers, go to the bar, go to the bar. Buy some drinks. Yeah, buy me a drink. <laughs> anyway, thanks a lot for coming. And we will see you next week on the Civic Podcast. Take care.